where it's real now. It's happening. It's yeah. Happening. Does it say live? Do you got a live little little red red thing saying yeah. live? You. I, I think we're live, man. I'm loving it. Okay, live and loving it. It is Sunday night. Sunday night live. It is good to be here with you, my friend Stephen Setzer. Um, Stephen and I have a lot of connections in common, but I'm not even sure we've ever been in the same room together. I'm not, never, never even seen you in the flesh. No, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? But like the number of people who who say to me, "You and Stephen Setzer, yeah, we got you must know Stephen Setzer. You know that guy. I know you know that." In Wycliffe College, MDiv. Yeah, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah, what's your degree from there? Where what did you study there? So it's called a certificate of graduate studies. But Dallas is a Dallas is a really like unique kind of seminary. So they're they're it, they don't have an MDiv program. They have something called a THM, which is not a traditional THM. THMs are typically like as you know like one typically one year post MDiv before a doctoral program. Their THM is four years. Um, so it's like going to university all over again. You have to do three, three years of Greek, two and a half years of Hebrew. That's what I signed up for. One year in, I decided to make my exit because I was going a different direction. And we can, I guess we can talk about that later. But, um, but it, I, I ended up getting something called a certificate of graduate studies. Cool. <laughs> but we know each other both for, through people at Wycliffe College. Yep. Uh, people at a parish we had in common. Yep. Uh, we know, I know some people from a parish you served at when I went to Israel with them. Yeah. We, everybody that I, I talk to about you says good stuff happens when you invite Steven Setzer to come along. That's mm. what they say. They say really mm. nice things about you. Mm. I got That's good to hear, man. That's good to hear. Yeah. That's yeah, good to it hear. Is, I thought you'd like to hear that. No, it is cool, man, because I, I think the person that I, that I was connected with that knew you really well was, um, was Nate wall. I oh, love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, Nate, Nate and I knew each other from Wycliffe and then he came to Dallas for a conference and actually hung out with me, stayed with me in my apartment in Dallas. And he was still working at transfig and you, you were still there, I think at the time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Anne Uranofsky, who was, uh, my, uh, we, we worked together at Christ church in Delaware. She was oh, like, really? I met this guy in Israel. He's yeah. awesome. <laughs> And I'll tell you, Nate Wall, one of the best conference speakers you're, you're ever going to hear. He, yeah. uh, I asked him to come alongside on, on my staff at one point, and like, I asked him to preach just as just put him on the rota. Yeah, I heard, this, I heard this guy speak, and I was like, okay, you need a regular gig wherever I am from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Where I go, you shall go. <laughs> So, brother, I asked you to come on and talk about uh, about a particular topic, uh, religious deconstruction and reconstruction. And I've had a whole bunch of people ask this week what, what I'm talking about here. What, what, a word, what are these words all about? Um, especially some of my friends who, who, who would claim the label spiritual but not religious. Yeah. People often who have been disaffected or hurt or... Um, have had bad experiences um, of institutionalized religion, but have a deep spirituality um, that is often rooted in holy texts or rooted in what some people call thin places or holy places. Um, lots of different ways to connect. And the questions 
um, from them are, is religious deconstruction a bad thing? Mm. And I want to put that in front of you because there's a lot of people out there today, um, both in America and Canada and all over the world, um, who are trying to figure out how to, how to have a faith um, that is both intelligent um, and real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think about religious deconstruction. Is that something that, that all religious people should be doing? Or is this something that is a path for those who are on their way out? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this today. Um, and you know, I was trying to think, you know, is there, is there a point in time when I, w- when I went through like a really serious deconstructing period in my life where, you know, things maybe from my past broke down and I experienced time in the wilderness or whatever. And then, and then was, you know, was somehow able to like come back and reconstruct a, a new faith identity. And I was really hard pressed to find a period, like a, like a point in time. Um, and what I kept kind of gravitating towards was that, you know, it, it feels more like points of time in my life where deconstruction was, um, was just really prevalent. And I think this gets to like just the role of doubt in faith itself. Like, I don't know that I've ever had one particular crisis of faith. I feel like I'm constantly kind of going through crises of faith in which the faith is being built up and broken down. Um, almost a little on time a, almost, about you today. I went on, uh, I went on your website and I didn't know you were, you're the son of a Baptist preacher. Mm-hmm. You, uh, yeah. you, you grew up and it, even said, it says on your little bio, cutting your teeth on the pews. Yeah. So you have yeah. to have gone through process of figuring out your own identity in the midst of the, of, of building up and tearing down different yeah. versions of faith. Yeah, for sure. I just, I just, from, you know, I just think that what is more common in my life is like there, there are these repeated moments or these repeated times of crises in which the faith is being broken down. Um, you know, and just to go through a timeline, I think that first started happening around, you know, probably my third year of college. Sure. Um, I was studying, you know, the Bible for the first time in a way that was more academic, I think. Yep. I was reading it more as like a, you know, as a, as a text. Um, you know, not just to be read on Sunday mornings in church, but to be read, you know, you know, from a more academic perspective, I went to seminary because I had these long, like these burning questions that I just had to get answers to. When I encountered the sort of historical roots of the church, I think that was another moment where, you know, it was kind of deconstructing the what, you know, what I thought about uh, church in a way that was non-credal, non-confessional, you know, the creed spoke to me, the confession spoke to me in a new way. That was deconstructing. But I would make the analogy, David, that, you know, just as though when we go to the gym to build muscle, the only way that you build muscle is to go through something called hypertrophy, right? Where you're actually, so you're breaking, you're breaking down your muscle fibers. You, you go home and you just squatted, you know, 250 pounds and you're incredibly sore, right? You can't walk the next day. Uh, But it's that, it's that, that part, right? That builds muscle. And you get up the next day and you do it again, right? In the gym, different muscle group or whatever. And you're constantly doing that. And so I think, you know, for me, doubt has played a pretty big role in my faith. Like I wish that I was the kind of person who sort of like just believed. And that was just, you know, my life of faith, right? I, I just believed and that was it, right? It was you know, settled forever. But it's not that way at all. I just feel like I'm constantly being kind of broken down. Uh, those muscle fibers are being broken down. But I, you know, I think, 
and this is something I was thinking about earlier. I think endurance is really undervalued um, as a Christian virtue. Like just the fact that like, yeah, I'm going to get broken down repeatedly. I'm going to be constantly deconstructing, but yeah, I'm going to be constantly waking up again the next morning to go back into the gem of faith, you know, and realizing that I'm, I'm never going to have this figured out once and for all, but it's going to be constantly <laughs> deconstructed and reconstructed in my life of faith. And that, and that is like a definition for what true faith is, right? Well, it's for interesting. Me, it's true. When I was in seminary, uh, which is, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, um, it was during the, the kind of post, uh, post really big popularity of John Shelby Spong, sure. where he, was, he had done a lot of work coming out of what was called the Jesus Seminar that you know about, and was to really, really de deconstruct the faith to some bare bones. Yeah. Um, and I remember really enjoying him at that time when I was living um, in an entirely academic world where I had no responsibility for anyone else. Um, yeah. And, you know, I could, I could go, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall and see what's stuck. Um, I think there's a place for just outright deconstruction. Um, but what I found was there was an emptiness on the end of that. Yeah. Right? If you peel away everything and you say nothing's worth anything, mm -hmm. um, and you're someone who is at the very least a spiritual person, um, something has to then be rebuilt in, yeah. in place. Yeah, yeah. We are at the, I hope, um, we're hope I hope we're seeing a, a light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic world, which has changed all institutions uh, from government to church. Um, mm -hmm. You are a new uh, pastor in Brooklyn, New York, uh, taking care of a, a congregation there. Um, life's starting to change a little bit. Um, lots of spiritual but not religious, lots of uh, seeking, lots of agnostic kind of people hanging out in the Big Apple, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, what does is, what is religious reconstruction look like on the other side of this pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I came at this, from a position of where I was outside of the church for a year and a half. The last service that I, that I led was in late 2019 and in September, um, we moved to New York from, from Wilmington, Delaware. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't functioning as a priest. I wasn't in the parish. Uh, I ended up, you know, looking for work. Uh, nothing appeared. I ended up working at Whole Foods part-time and working at a part-time at a running store, you know, in the service industry, right? Retail. I then went into real estate, uh, working for a technology startup for about a year throughout the COVID pandemic. And, um, you know, there were, there were a lot of questions for me about my, about my vocational identity. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what does it look like to be a priest when you're not in the parish, right? This is, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, 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 you have, you have, some, you have some thoughts about that. I, I have, some, have some experience in that, uh, in that world. <laughs> yeah. And so it wasn't, it wasn't until late 2020 that I started writing again. And that was kind of my entree back into, and this was, a, I guess this was a kind of reconstruction for me, right? A reconstruction of vocational identity to say, I'm, I'm not in the parish, but I'm still burning up with these questions and I'm going to write about it. Uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up getting this job in, in Brooklyn, New York, at, at St. John's and Park Slope. And, and yeah, you know, there are a lot of people. Someone just remarked to me today after the service 
an older one of our parishioners who's been there for a long, long time. She looked, she, she talked to me after the service. She said, I'm looking around the room. I'm thinking, I have never seen some of these people. She's like, there, there were more, there were more new people there than, than old people. Uh, it skewed incredibly young. Uh, as I was walking out after the church, I was talking to a young couple and I was asking them like, how long have you been coming to this church? And they were like, we found it during the pandemic. I was like, well, how did you find it? That's really interesting. And they said, well, we're not really Christian, but we started reading the Bible during the pandemic and showed up to church. And I think that's fascinating, you know, as yeah. you, right? I, I, and, I, and I just, I told them, I was like, oh, we've got to talk. Like, I need to sit down with you for a couple of hours to figure out, like, how did you just pick up the Bible in the middle of the pandemic? <laughs> but I think what we're, listen, this is all, this is all hypothesis right here. Like, there's, there's no yeah, data necessarily to back this up. But my sense is that, you know, people have been really locked up for a long time now, right? We've yeah. been living in a world where people have been living out of their apartments, working out of their apartments, doing absolutely everything out of their apartments. Uh, and in New York, that's especially hard, right? Because typically people have really small apartments, you know? And the population um, density, too, right? Like you're all on yeah. top of each other. I mean, in yeah. Toronto, it's not quite as bad, but I get it. Yeah, for sure. And we have this rampant digitization of our lives where everything is now happening online. Uh, our work, you know, our, 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 you know, office encounters are happening on Zoom. Yeah. Our relationship building is happening on social media. Uh, we're meeting romantic partners on Tinder. Like, it, 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 and I flirted with this for a while. I was like, you know, how do we digitize, how do we digitize the church? How does the church sort of enter into this fray? Because I don't know that many churches are doing a good job of it. Um, but I think that there's, there is a sense in which I believe that people are going to come back to these, these uh, in-person uh, flesh and blood, community tethered organizations like churches. And I, you know, you asked the question, like what, what other community organization is out there like quite like the church or quite like other religious organizations, right? They don't really exist. I mean, people aren't going to clubs in the same way that they used to clubs, meaning like, you know, membership kind of clubs. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if what we're going to find is that people who may not have thought of themselves as religious or may not have even thought of themselves as spiritual are going to be coming back to church communities or religious communities for that in-person connection, for that, for that opportunity in which they can lift their heads up to heaven and say, God, is there something more? There's got to be something more than the digitization of my life, right? I'm wondering this, right? Earlier this week, I, I, I live in a, very, a fairly small apartment in Toronto. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to have it, but it's, it's 500 square feet. And it's mm-hmm. 290 feet in the air. And I've probably spent 90% of my hours here over the last three months because we've been living in a lockdown. Yeah. Um, and if you've been, if you're a senior citizen or if you're someone with a disability or if you're somebody um, who is in a very difficult marriage or whatever it might be, um, community organizations are going to have to play a role for a lot of people in ways that they had to in eras past. Um, yeah. what we thought as fully liberated, individualized citizens could take care of everything on our own. Um, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think we're going to be able to function like that in, uh, yeah. in the post pandemic world. So yeah. I think that there's real opportunities to serve and connect. Um, yeah, totally. And I think, you know, we're, we're also entering in a period in just the social political life in our world where, um, you know, there's, there's been a real demystification of social media, right? And, and, you know, tech companies that in 2010, you know, were lauded as like, you know, the greatest thing in the history of the world. And I think now we're looking at this and we're seeing all the problems that it actually incurs in our lives and our children's lives and our teenagers' lives in our adult lives, right? 
uh, inability to connect physically and in person. Uh, there's a there's a new there's a new book that was just released this past year called the the, um, the Lonely Century, in which this researcher from uh, from England begins to like look at all the ways that we are being you know negatively affected by social media, and she tells a story in a recent podcast with a guy named Scott Galloway, where there's a preeminent um, university in America where one of the college went to college uh, president told this researcher that they're having to do like seminars now for their incoming freshman class for people to like re learn how to like learn social cues again. Right. Because people don't, they don't know how to like really exist in society in this way. And so, uh, I don't know. I think it's just going to be really interesting for, for places like the church to, to reenter into people's lives in a really dramatic way. And that both it's going to have a, a positive impact. And this is going to come with a lot of questions about how do we reconstruct faith for people, you know, who have a very limited experience with what faith is, mm-hmm. um, at least the Christian faith. Right. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Really interesting. I think one of the keys for um, faith leaders in this next generation is to be entrepreneurial, to, to think out of the box and to, to understand that we are on a cutting edge in a time um, that so much change has happened that, so, that we only know change now. That's yeah. kind of our generation. Um, I was I was reading some of your blogs and that on uh, on Sacred Society, which is your website. Um, yeah, and I I think what you're doing there and the way you have positioned it as almost a public priest, a public public minister, public priest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me, tell me what motivated this, and yeah. if you think there's a void that you're filling there, um, and if more people should be doing things like this. Yeah. Well, for me, it was my entree back into, you know, really back into um, Christian teaching, Christian preaching, right? Uh, I'd been out of the pulpit for, for quite a while. And, um, you know, I, I felt this call to, you know, to, to, to at least pursue some questions that I had with respect to the church, which was with respect to my ministry. Uh, and so I just started writing. And, um, you know, for me, I was really prompted by a particular question that was asked in a book, uh, called Competing Against Luck by a Harvard Business School professor who just recently died. His name's Clayton Christensen. Mm. And Christensen developed this idea called job theory, which is essentially people do not hire, this is a quotation from his book, people do not hire products or they, they don't buy products and services. They pull products and services into their lives to make progress. And that, the way that he described that really captivated me. They don't, you're not buying something, you're pulling something into your life to make progress. And he says that people, you know, one of the most fundamental desires that we have as humans is to make progress, yeah. you know, to have a sense of, you know, accomplishment in our lives. And so I began to ask the question, like, is, is the church actually helping people solve problems? Is the church actually helping people to accomplish right. something in their life? And so I began to pose the question just on, on uh, the blog and, and the weekly newsletter, which is, uh, you, you know, to, to, to pose a question in this way. So if the, if the church were a tool and it was hanging in your workshop, what would cause you to go into that workshop and to pull that tool of the church or the, pool, or, or the tool of God or the tool of faith off of your workshop wall to, to hammer a problem or to do, what would that problem be that would cause you to pull the church off the shelf? And so Clayton Christensen has this great way of presenting it. He says, you know, people don't buy quarter-inch drills because they need quarter-inch drills. Sure. People buy quarter-inch drills because they have a quarter-inch hole that they need to, to be placed into a wall, right? 
And so we oftentimes talk about the church. We oftentimes talk about faith as though you need to have this faith. You need to have this church in your life. You need to have Christianity, whatever, God in your life, uh, because you need it in your life. And we don't really ask the question of like, what problem are you solving for that would make you want to have the church or that would make you want to you know, wake up on a Sunday morning and, and go to the church? Or what problem are you solving for that would make you want to tap into a faith life? What is that? And I just found that when I pose that question to people, specifically Christians, right, who have been in church their entire lives, they're like, they look kind of like befuddled when I ask the question. And honestly, okay. I, I would say, and myself too, like, I'm like, oh, God, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really, what problem am I solving? I was, was going to follow up. I was going to be like, well, what's the answer, Stephen? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. But I'm asking that question to as many people as I possibly can because I'm, I'm convinced that there is a problem. And Chris, Christensen will say that a lot of times, People, and he's doing this in a corporate context for a lot of businesses. He said, you know, when you ask this question in boardrooms, you know, you may be asking the question to the CEO of this company who's been there for 10 or 15, 20 years. And he, he or she may not know what that problem is that they're trying to solve for. But I think that we, it behooves us to really ask that question. Uh, I know that we've been asking it a lot, a buddy, a buddy uh, and I on Wednesday nights on Clubhouse, which is a new social, social platform that's audio only. We've been asking that question to people there. And uh, my, my buddy, Steve, is a Presbyterian pastor and kind of a, a tech guy out in San Francisco. And uh, he's particularly dogged whenever anyone tries to answer that question on Clubhouse. He'll keep <laughs> asking them, like, why? Well, you know, last week we had a, a, an awesome person on there who was giving us a description of peace. She said, you know, I come to church for peace. And my friend Steve was like, well, why don't you just download the Calm app? Yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair question. She had some really, she had some really, you know, phenomenal That's ways weird. to answer that question, right? Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just that, you know, you, you, there are certain things that you get, there are certain value adds that you get from a Christian community or a religious community yeah. that an app download is never going to be able to give you, right? One That's of those is a sense of oh, belongs to one. Um, I'm, and I was always, always a supporter uh, of, of of digital forms of ministry always, yeah. but they have to be rooted in a real flesh and blood context um, on some level. The, de the desire has to be to get back there um, because, you know, I, the number of people I talk to um, who are struggling deeply with depression and uh, lack of hope at the moment. Um, and so much of that is just because we're not meant to live this way. We're not, yeah. we're not, we're not meant to live alone. We're not meant to live segregated. We're not meant to live divided. Um, and, you know, at the very core of the gospel, that, it, that is the message, right, is we are meant to be made one. Um, yeah. And so finding ways to belong to one another again in, in, in real life is, I think it's going to matter um, in all institutions. And, you know, I, I look at my son, Rory, and he had a whole bunch of time off last year from school. And they're, yeah. for the most part, they're back in school now. And he, he, you know, we did our best. We all did our best to, to get through it all. But he was struggling um, in his own development just as a, as a, as a growing six, seven-year-old boy with social, socialization, with all the things that had to happen. Um, Community centers, um, churches, mosques, yeah. um, they are going to have a real integral role to play for kids like Rory, um, who spent time um, out, out of that kind of kid-centered environment or, or multi-generational centered environment with so few places have now. Um, yeah. I hope all those things come back. I really do. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think, I think they will. I think they will. I think we have to be, you know, what I've been telling our church here in Park Slope is that, um, you know, we really have to prepare for this near future. I think the past year hit us particularly hard at St. John's. I think it hit, you know, most traditional churches really, really hard that weren't prepared for any kind of like, you know, digital presentation of what they're doing on Sunday mornings or whatever. And so, you know, for, for a lot of people, and I've been hearing this from a lot of, a lot of our parishioners, uh, you know, the church just kind of like exited their life. You know, there wasn't really a lot going on for especially the particularly dark months of COVID. What I've been telling them, you know, at, at this point is that this is the year of our COVID comeback. I don't, I don't think it's just for our parish. I think it's for, for a lot of churches to really be prepared for what's coming next, uh, for the people that are coming back in, to be able to present the gospel to them in a way uh, that is, you know, that is, that is fresh, uh, that is different, that is unique. Um, that, that, so that they can see it as something of really incredible hope in their lives, right? Uh, I mean, I, be, I believe that the gospel at its core, you know, what it's, what it's saying to us is that Jesus Christ did something at, at its core, right? It, Jesus Christ did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And we live, you know, in New York, you're in Toronto, and most of our urban centers, it's just a place of constant performance where, like, you've got to constantly feel as though you're, you're measuring up. You can show no signs of weakness. You can show no signs of vulnerability, which is one reason why I appreciate your book so much. Dude, my jaw dropped, right? My jaw dropped this weekend as I'm wrapping it up because it's, it's so incredibly truthful, so incredibly honest. And so I think the church is a place where this kind of honesty, this kind of truthfulness can be spoken to say, yeah, you can't do it all, period. No, and if you're, trying, if, you, if you're trying to do it all, you're going to fail miserably. You're going to fail even, 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 even worse, right? So to rely upon, you know, what this unique quality of the gospel is, which it says, you know, you can't do it, but it's okay because everything that could be done has already been done in Jesus Christ. And I think that unique message is going to be so incredibly important for this resurgent, for this, re, for this reconstruction for people's faith. This, there's a church in, in Manhattan uh, that I went to for a while right before COVID started, and they've got these massive banners on the outside of the church which just say, enjoy your forgiveness, enjoy. And it's, and it's, it's like all around the church property in the heart of Gramercy Park, enjoy your forgiveness. Like the grace is already yours, right? Can you realize it in your life? And it just so happens that they're growing by leaps and bounds because people need to hear this, right? More than anything else, more than anything else. You know what, brother, I got to tell you, these Sunday night conversations I, I didn't. I didn't know exactly why I was doing them, but every week I find myself inspired by people that I'm, I'm chatting with, and I'm uh, I'm grateful to 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 hear your good news and the good news yeah, of the gospel. It's beautiful, and I'm yeah. I'm excited for your parish in Brooklyn. I think uh, I think some good things are coming uh, around your way. Yeah, man. Cool. Yeah. Let me throw you some rapid fire. I got some rapid fire for you. Maybe all right, some, all right, all right. Yeah, let's see what we can do. So let's start off. Favorite favorite New York borough. Well, I gotta say Brooklyn, right? You can't say anything yeah. else. Can you? Not I, gotta, I gotta, I gotta say Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> there might be people watching. You know, be like, well, this is a follow-up trail. Here's the follow-up. So, is it Mets or Yankees for you? Man, I don't know. I, I guess I would say Yankees, but I, I you know, I'm so like sport disconnected. Yeah. I lost touch like when I was in college, man, and I, I feel like talk about deconstruction. I deconstructed my sports identity. I really did, man. I was a huge college basketball fan, huge, huge college football fan. That's a whole other conversation. That, you know, we're in rapid yeah. fire, so we'll come back to it. But favorite Wycliffe College professor? Ann Jervis. 
Ann Jervis, I, I'm going to pause <laughs> rapid fire because you can't say Ann Jervis and I had made for you to that alone. Ann Jervis is one of my favorite people of all time. Um, yeah. Ann Jervis, no matter whether I have been in the height of celebration or the depth of despair, um, shows up with, um, with care and love yeah. and grace. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great. Grace is the word, man. Like there's just something about in her lectures, you know, we, I, I, I saw her in church too. So I got to experience her in church and worship and in the lecture hall and in, and in every single encounter was just overwhelmed with, with the grace of her personality. So anyways, yeah. And Jervis easy. C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien? Uh, C.S. Lewis. I honestly, I've never read Tolkien and I'm so sorry. I know you're a huge Tolkienite. Wow. Tolkien, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry, man. Oh, I'm so man. sorry. Oh. I also don't know. I also don't know what to do with fantasy. I just get, I just don't know what to do with it. Do you know? Do you know that um, C.S. Lewis uh, was was brought to the Christian faith by Tolkien? Yeah, and his book, The Screwtape Letters, he dedicated to Tolkien. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they hung out. They like would hang out and smoke pipes and talk theology and stuff, right? Literally. We did. I did. When I, I did a summer um, at Oxford when I was a teenager. Poor me. Um, and. Uh, I, I, I drank a lot of pints in the pub that the two of them used to hang out in. Um, really? Ah. It. It's very cool. It's very cool. Yeah, yeah. The great divorce, but that's C.S. Lewis. There you go. That, that's, my, that's my choice. One of my favorites. Um, International Women's Week, or International Women's Month and International Women's Day was this week. And yep. uh, Mark, who is your favorite biblical heroine? Hmm. Hmm. And why? You know, I just had a conversation on Thursday about Esther. We're doing, there's a mural project that's happening at St. John's. And I was talking to the artist and he was, he was putting a new figure on the wall and a female figure. And uh, I, was, I was asking him about it. And he was like, what's Esther? He was like, you know, do you remember the story of Esther? <laughs> I was like, I do. God, I, don't, I feel like we don't talk about, like we don't talk about it a lot. Like maybe it just doesn't come up a lot in the right kind of lectionary, right? But she was willing to put everything on the line, right? She was willing to put everything on the line for her people, um, for her convictions, for her commitments, uh, including, like, and including her body, right? And I think there's, some, there's something about the embodiment of that sacrifice, the embodiment of that commitment. Um, and the story is really jarring, right? I mean, when you, when you read it, not through like, you know, Sunday school eyes, but when you read it through the lens of like the real world, you realize that, that's a heavy story, dude. And like, and, she, and it's not a it's big heavy. book. The, the book of Ruth that you can read uh, fairly quickly. If you want to, yeah. you don't want to read it quickly, but you could, it's not tons and tons of pages. If you want to yeah. dig into it, it's a story worth reading. Yeah, totally, totally, totally an incredible story. Uh, but she was willing to put everything on the line um, in the most dramatic way for her people. And I just think that's awesome. Totally awesome. I heard a sermon uh, this morning from uh, uh uh, my friend and uh, I'm humble to call be called his coach, uh, Steve yeah. Green. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. He was uh, he he alluded a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit of foreshadowing in the lectionary to um, to the to the different women um, from the women who um, who gathered at Jesus' feet to wash his feet to the women who prepared the spices and went to the tomb. Um, that these were audacious and just badass women who. Yeah. Um, 
who didn't care who said where they could go or where they could sit, um, uh, but knew who they were listening to and who they were with and who they were following and, uh, and just yeah. did it. Anyway. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Really, you know, this in, during international women's month, it's cool to, to really take a hard look at the Bible to find, uh, and, and whatever your holy text might be, um, mm -hmm. uh, to find some interesting women in there. Cause uh, I yeah. think they get overlooked a lot. Yep. 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 <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, true words have not been spoken. You and I, we, we joked this week and I, we'll, we'll kind of finish up in the next few minutes, but um, we, we joked a little bit about whether we'd, uh, whether we'd, we'd dedicate a huge segment to uh, Harry and Megan um, and, uh, and the, uh, and the, and the bombshell Oprah interview, the, uh, the deconstruction of the British monarchy. And, uh, and I had a thought and I, yeah. I, I, I want to put it out there for you to think about as an American, okay? Because uh -huh. this is important for you, okay? <laughs> yeah. Megan is having a baby, uh -huh. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Baby girl who is like 12th in line to the British throne. In like 40 years, maybe 35, I think that's the Constitution, she could run for president as an American citizen. And a young woman who's a biracial woman who may mm -hmm. be... 12th or 13th in line to the British throne could be the American president. And Britain will have finally taken America back. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. wow. I haven't heard anyone say it yet, so I'm throwing it out there. Yeah. I guess she'd have to revoke, she'd have to revoke like her Eng like English or British citizenship, right? Megan? Well, she's no, American. no. No, 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 the the, uh, the child before they they could run for president, probably right. Well, she's gonna be like the, they're in they're in the states. She's gonna be born yeah. in there. I, I don't they're know. Blood. I don't know. I mean, there were there were there was all these all these conversations about Schwarzenegger, you know, years ago in California running for president, and he had the you know he had this like well he wasn't born here, right? And so they were like, could could they amend the constitution? <laughs> was was there a loophole to get Arnold in the in the White House? <laughs> the presidenter. <laughs> <laughs> Steven, it's been great to talk to you, brother. Um, yeah, man. Love it. Um, I hope we get to do some work together in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's some, some things. We already had a couple conversations. I think there's some cool stuff we could do. And, uh, yeah. and while we are still in the, uh, the, the pre-post-COVID world, you know, whatever digital ways we can connect, uh, let's find ways to do that. Yeah, man. Get down to New York sometime soon. I will. I will. You t all right. You take care and God bless, man. Hi, right, brother. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.